the whole earth is full of His glory. Name that verse, Isaiah chapter 6. Okay, got another one for you. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Name that verse. Revelation 4. 4 verse 8. How many of you got both right? Thumbs up. Okay. Oh, oh, 50-50? 50-50 maybe? All right. Today, we're going to look at the holiness of God. Kind of a walk through Scripture and how God has revealed Himself in His holiness. Some say that holiness is the greatest attribute of God. Why? Because it's the only one mentioned three times in a row. There are many great things about God, but holiness is definitely one of those that sets him apart from all other things in this world. There are many things that set him apart, but holiness, I guess, is, is probably one of the greatest. Um, and I've grown to really appreciate it more. Um, if you ask any unbeliever, what does holy mean? What are they going to say? Well, that's a religious devout person, someone who's morally right, right? That, that's what the unbeliever would say, the world Someone who goes to church every Sunday. Somebody who does the sacraments. Somebody who does nothing wrong. Someone who is a priest and dressed up in all that fancy garb. That's a holy person. Someone who says their prayers every morning. That's a holy person. Someone who gives to the poor might be a holy person. But we who study the Scriptures know that's not quite what the Word really describes. See, the word holy... At its, at its core, is used to describe the all-powerful, supreme being who created the universe. That's what the word is meant for at its inception. It's meant to describe, try to put in a way so that we might understand what God is like. That there's nothing like Him. Holy means distinct, unique, set apart. There's only one of Him. There's nothing like our God. Who can speak and light flies out of his mouth? Who can speak and worlds come into existence? Who can speak and the storms stop? Who can do that? Nobody. Nobody can think something, poop, it happens. Only God can do that. Who can be everywhere at once? Nobody, only God can do that. Who can know everything? Nobody, only God can do that. He is different. He is set apart. Nothing in his universe is like him. That's what the world Holy is trying to describe. Holy, holy, holy. No one, anywhere, nothing in all of the universes, even the things that we don't know, the things that we can't see, nothing like our God. Nothing. Nothing at all. He is the only one who can create beauty, who can bring order, who can bring reason and purpose to this world, to anything. He takes nothing and makes stuff out of it. He can take messed up people and make beauty from it. Who can do that? Nobody but God. I kind of enjoy, if you guys know anything about the Bible Project, all right, they have their YouTube series. Some of you, we've watched, maybe we've watched them in their care groups before. I, I love the... Um, the Bible projects, just because they're a great overview, and I'm a, I'm not a great reader, but I love watching shows. So, and it's pictures, words, it's animated. So that's the kind of stuff I like. They had a great metaphor 
that I appreciate because I'm a science guy, you know, it kind of geeked me out a little bit talking about the holiness of God relating to something I like, the sun, right? In our little, in our, not universe, our little solar system here, our little, you know, cul-de-sac in the universe, um, we have lots of planets. We got nine, nope, sorry, eight planets because Pluto no longer exists because all the other planets do this and Pluto does this. So it just doesn't fit right. So we got eight planets and we got terrestrial planets that have rocks in them. We have gaseous planets that have gas. So there's similar things out there. But in the middle of all of it is the sun. Is there anything like the sun in our known little solar system? Nothing like our sun. Our sun is distinct in our little cul-de-sac. There's nothing else like it. And in fact, our sun's really cool. Our sun emits radiation. And that radiation is necessary for our life. It's, it's, we need it. The sun emits all right, light rays that travel across this, the universe to us in eight minutes. And they get here and they give us life. Without the sun, we human beings have a problem. We have a big problem. It's like we die in a month or two. Everybody, every living thing on this planet ceases to live within a month or two if the sun goes out. Because we need its life-sustaining power. It's what gives us energy here on Earth. It's what gives us our light, our heat. It's what causes everything to grow. We need it. But we also know that in the goodness and the awesomeness of the sun, you get too close to it, it, it destroys you. We can't get that close to the sun. If we get too far from the sun, what happens? We also die. We need the sun. Everything around the sun enjoys the uniqueness of the sun, the, the holiness of the sun, its radiation, its goodness, its power. You get too close, you get burned. You get too far, you die. Well, God is kind of like that too. We need God's goodness. We need God's holiness. And when you get too close to God, well, if you walk through Scripture, we'll get to some of the stories. What happens when you get too close to God? You die. You approach God in the wrong manner, you die. And it's not because God is bad. It's because He's so good. God is so good, we can't get close to Him. Why? Because we're a defiled, corrupt, immoral, dirty, filthy people. We can't. Human beings can't go near God. But without God, we cease to exist. Without God's sustaining power, without His love, we cease to exist. So we need Him. Where is the first time in Scripture that the holiness of God kind of comes up? Where we kind of get a little glimpse of, wow, okay, God is really awesome and I can't go near that. Hmm. Well, we see it in creation, obviously, right? How God is distinct. He's the only one who can do those things. But in the world of human beings, where's the first interaction where humans have an interaction with God going, whoa, okay now. Uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty intense. Well, we got Moses, right? Where do we find that story? You can turn there. I'm not going to read it for you necessarily. But in Exodus chapter 3, okay, we know the story very well. Moses is, well, he's in the desert, right? And he's doing some shepherding out there in the desert. 
And he comes across a what? He comes across a bush, right? All right, bush is on fire. That's that's kind of cool. Hey, I like fire. Let's go, let's go check. Whoa, that's that's really interesting. Because what's wrong with that bush? It's on fire, and the bush is what? It's not being consumed. The bush is not actually burning. The bush is on fire, but not burning. That's really interesting. So he's going over to check this bush out, and out from this bush comes this. Par- this is Brian paraphrasing. Whoa, hold up there. Back on up. Don't come any closer. You're going to die. And I know that's not what God really said, but that's me paraphrasing the story. And what is Moses doing? Pause. And what does God actually say? He says, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What does Moses do next? Oh, snap. All right, he has this uh-oh moment. And what does he do? He hides his face, for he was afraid to look at God. See, at this moment in time, up until now, how much has been revealed to mankind about who God is? How much interaction has there been between human beings and God up close and personal? Outside of Adam and Eve, who literally walked with God every single day in the cool of the eve. All right? Unique situation that we can't experience like that. Okay? This is kind of one of the first ones where someone gets to see, whoa, this is intense. God in all of his beauty, God in all of his power, God in all of his wonder... I, I can't go near that. There's this instant reaction where human beings, and I believe that any human being, if right now God came down in front of us, all right, we'll talk about Christians in a minute, but if he, got, if he popped into the room and he displayed all of his glory, we'd be like, instantaneous, whoa, hold up there. Uh, we don't have to think about that. Hmm, that's God. What should my reaction be to that? Oh, let me think, oh, should I be happy? Should I be sad? Should I be... No, instantaneous... I'm in the presence of something really amazing, really awesome, really powerful. There's some reverential fear there. Oh, snap moment going on. All right? That's what Moses just experienced. I'm going to hide my face right now. I'm not going to look at that. And there's a future time in life where we know that Moses and God had a very unique, from here at this point forward, Moses and God had a very unique relationship. One where he actually went up on a mountain for a long period of time and met with God. He met with God during the writing of the Ten Commandments, right? When he came down from a mountain, what was so unique about Moses that no other human beings ever had? His face was so bright, literally emitting the light, so bright. People around him couldn't look at him. They're like, oh, blindness, I can't, I can't, like looking into the sun. Now, was Moses so special and so holy that he was emitting light? No. But like the moon at night that reflects the beauty of the sun, Moses' face was radiating the beauty of God because he was in his presence. And people couldn't look at Moses. He literally had to put a cover over his face. He had to wear a veil over his face. <laughs> All day long, because people couldn't look at him. From just being in the presence of God. Just being in the presence of God.
I think sometimes we underestimate the holiness of our God, the uniqueness, the power of our God. A lot of times we go, hey, buddy, buddy, Jesus, you know, he's my home dog. We got to be careful who we talk to. We got to be careful who we talk to. He's the all-powerful supreme being. He sits on a throne, and when he tells any angel to go do something, guess what happens? Boom, they're going. They don't ask questions. They do it. When God wants something done, no one goes, you know what, king? Um, yeah, I think we should do it this way. No. They do it. Instantaneously. God wants something done. It gets done. His way, when he wants it. And no other way. There, you, 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 can't, you can't argue with him. Why? Because when you make something, you own it. He made the universe. He gets to do whatever he wants with it. That's his supremacy. That's his right. We need to be careful who we're talking to. Now, we'll look at the Christian relationship, how it is unique with God later on. But from the human perspective, there is a God out there who sits on a throne and rules this universe with supreme authority. And that is the God we're here today to worship. That is the God who loves us unconditionally. Now, where else do we see a picture of God's holiness? Something about his uniqueness that's revealed to us. Well, this is not like an individual section that I'm referring of, but when you look at uh, the Torah, all right, looking at um, a little bit of Exodus, mostly Leviticus and into Deuteronomy, we see the holiness of God displayed to mankind through the tabernacle and then into the temple. In Exodus 25, all right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read a verse out of 25. But we see that when they come into they come into the desert, and God wants to be with His people, He wants to lead His people, He wants to have communion with His people. All right, in Exodus chapter 25, whoop, I'll just go there. They build this thing called the tabernacle, and we know that in the tabernacle there are many different rooms, all right, many different stages. But what's at the core? What's at the core of the tabernacle? God's dwelling. The place where God literally dwells. I don't know how he did it, but somehow he got himself, in, like the, the, the hugest of God, he, he somehow is ca- able to capture himself in this room, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, they called it. And in Exodus 25, what does it say, verse 33? Exodus 25, 33. No. How about 26? Wait, is it 26? How did I get that wrong? All right, I'll just read you the first because I wrote it down here. You shall hang up a veil under the clasps and shall bring in the Ark of the Covenant and there within the veil, and the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. See, God required that there was a thick, heavy, Curtain separating mankind from him and us. Inside the Holy of Holies. Alright, now we know this well because we've heard it preached many times. Alright, that in the Holy of Holies, big wall. And could anybody at any time, yo God, let's have a little chit chat, walk in there and say, hey God, I got some issues I want to talk about. Can anybody just do that? No. 
What happened? Now, there are accounts in the scripture. What happened when people walked in there, whoop, without uh, coming in correctly? It didn't, it didn't, didn't go, it didn't end well for them, did it? With instant death. Anybody who tried to enter the direct presence of God without going through the proper protocol and procedures, instant death. Instant death. Even if you are the most special high priest, you couldn't just waltz in any time. There were expectations that God had. We know that the high priest, the one and only, the high priest serving at the time, he could do what? He could go into that room once a year, and that was it. Now, he could serve in the rest of the tabernacle and in the temple other times, but the holies of holies, just once a year. Why is that? Why is that? Well, the reason again being, God is so perfect. Nothing wrong in him. Sinless undefiled, and we are a what? Well, we know very clearly Scripture says all are sinners. We're all defiled. We're all corrupt, nasty, dirty people. Okay? And nothing that is impure can come into the presence of a perfect God. There's nothing wrong about God. No sickness, no death, no impurities, no limps. Okay? I'm just talking about physical things, aren't I? And there's definitely no sin, no, no lies, nothing wrong about God. He is perfect, perfect, perfect in every way you can even think about. And we are imperfect. We have sicknesses, we have injuries, we have bruises, okay? We are physically impure, and we are also morally impure. And people like that cannot come into God's presence because He is perfect. He just can't have us in His presence like that. It can't work. Yet God desires communion for some reason. God desires communion with people like us. He wants to have a relationship with us. He just can't do it. It's not because he doesn't want to do it. He can't do it because we are so messed up. And the entire book of Leviticus is pretty much God's procedure and rules, his step-by-step process, of how we can come into God's presence and communicate with Him. Alright, we know that the priests, in order for the priests to just even begin their daily work, scrub themselves down. They had to clean up their physical impurities. They had to wash their clothes. They had to light the incense. They had to make the food clean and pure before the food even went into the tabernacle. Alright? There were so many steps that they had to follow just to be able to go into God's presence. And if they messed up one of those death. Not because God doesn't like them. Not because God hates them or has anything wrong with them. But God says, listen, if you're going to approach me and not die because of my radiant awesomeness, here's the steps you have to go through. Read through Leviticus. It's it's exhaustive what they have to go through. And anything that symbolizes death Basically, if you go near something that symbolizes death or touch something that symbolizes death, disqualifies you from coming into God's presence, right? We know that the people could not go into the tabernacle if they had touched a dead body. 
If they had touched a sick person, or they even had a disease, you couldn't go into the tabernacle or the temple to worship. You couldn't do it. Now, does that mean that God hates you? That you've done something wrong? I touched a dead person. Oh, no, God doesn't like me anymore. Is that what it means? No. There's nothing wrong with your father passed away. Hey, go bury him. All right? You, you caught a sickness or a disease. God doesn't hate you for that. He didn't hate the people back then for that. But he simply said, listen, you've got some issues, and those issues represent death, and I am the opposite of death. I am life. I can't be in the presence of that. I can't be in the presence of that. you got to clean yourself up. And because God desires to have communion with us, he gave us step-by-step procedures on how to clean yourselves up. That if you had the stomach bug, okay, you're to wait six days, Go see the priest. The priest will say, yeah, you've had no symptoms for six days. All right, you're good again. Now you're clean. Not that the priest did anything, but he made a determination that, okay, you're good again now, right? There was procedures for doing those things. And none of it was the fact that God didn't like you anymore. It's just that he couldn't come near you. Or you couldn't go near him mostly. Okay? When it came to our moral filth, our sin problem... God had a step-by-step procedure of how to correct that. Right? So we had the physical covering of washing and cleaning and getting healthy again. Alright? If you're a female and had, you know, your monthly issues going on, you couldn't come near God until you were clean again, right? Because all that represents death. When it came to your sin, you had to what? Go through the sacrificial process. Something had to die to cover up your sins so that you could approach God and be covered, have your moral imperfections temporarily covered until we see Jesus Christ later on. We'll come look at that, okay? Isaiah chapter 6 is one of the next things that come up on the scene. Alright, so we've looked at Moses, had an encounter with God. Whoa, I can't look at God. I'm going to hide my face. Then we have the tabernacle, and we kind of learn about why God can't come into um, direct um, relationship with us because of our uncleanliness. In Isaiah chapter 6, which I read from the very beginning, Isaiah being a prophet of God, God gives him a, a revelation, he gives him a vision. And it's not a dream, this is like more than a dream, this is like a real thing. He's having communication with God here. And all of a sudden, boom, he's caught up into heaven. And where is he? He finds himself in the throne room of God. And Isaiah has this oh snap moment. And he's like, I'm a dead man. What does Isaiah actually say? Woe is to me. Woe is to me. I am undone. I am ruined. He, Isaiah literally thinks this is his last moment as a man. He literally thinks, That's it. I'm done. I'm dead. I'm going to be incinerated right now. Because he sees God in all of his beauty. And he knows from the Levitical process that you can't just waltz into God's presence however you want. And all of a sudden, boom, I'm here in God's presence. And oh shoot, I am an unclean person with unclean lips and I come from an unclean people. I'm in trouble. Isaiah knows this very well. And what happens? Something very unique that we've never seen done before in history happens. A seraphim, right? An angel. Six wings. 
Two that cover their face, two that cover their feet, because they're in the direct presence of God, they're you know, in the holiness of God. And with two wings he flies. And what does he do? He grabs a coal out of the altar, flies over to Isaiah, takes that burning coal off the altar, sears Isaiah's tongue. And what does he say to Isaiah? What does he say to Isaiah? Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. What? What? Your sin is taken away. Sorry, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now see, in the past, this is, this is really unique. Because in the past, up until this point in time, all right, if something impure touched something pure, which way did the purity go? Did the clean thing make the dirty thing clean? Or did the dirty thing make the clean thing dirty? Simple, simple example. You guys have day life, right? I got my raw chicken out on the counter. It's on top of my cutting board. I got my cutting knife out, and I'm prepping the chicken stuff in it, doing whatever I'm doing with this chicken, making a mess, right? Raw chicken here, right? All the, the gooiness is getting everywhere. Take the chicken, throw it in the oven, cook it up. The chicken is not good to eat, right? Take that chicken back out, put it back on the same cutting board, get out the same knife. How many of you are like, ooh, don't do that? That's a no-no, right? Did that nice, clean chicken that's now good to eat make the utensils in that cutting board that's filthy, full of bacteria, salmonella that's going to cause you to get sickness, did it make that sickness go away and make it clean? Or did that sickness just reinfect that clean chicken? Which way did that go? Which way was the transfer? It was obviously dirty things only make clean things dirty. Clean things up until now have never made dirty things clean. It's only ever been a one-way transfer. And you all know that. You guys know that. There were people in this church that were supposed to come visit my family over the last two weeks with the plague in my house. All right? And and they said, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't going there. (laughs) He's not here so I can say it. Mike Vecchio was supposed to come help me demo my house. We did a big demolition of my house just the last few days. And he was planning for the last month to come help me out do it. And he's like, I ain't going near your house. I'm not stepping foot on your property. I'm not breathing your air. I'm not going near. But I'm like, Mike, it's been days since we've been sick. I ain't going there. And I wish it worked like the nice, clean Mike would show up and it's like, you clean my house and we all good again. No, because it's only one way, right? You walk into my house, you're going to walk out with the plague. It's a one-way transfer. It's not, you can't bring clean people to my house and make us better again. It doesn't work like that. We can only share our goodness with you. Okay? It's a one-way trip. But we see the reverse here. Isaiah being an impure, imperfect person, filthy lips, gets touched by something pure, and the transfer went the other way. Can you guys see the implications of this? This is huge. This is huge. Now, we in hindsight, with the full revelation of God revealed to us, we can see where God's going with this, right? This is a whole new imagery, a whole new system that God's revealing. He's opened up saying, wow, guys, listen. For those of you who are used to only dirty things becoming, making clean things dirty, I can undo that. There is a way to undo that permanently. Not just a temporary covering, but permanently fix things. Ezekiel 47. Okay? 
Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel has another vision, sort of like Isaiah's, a little bit different. All right, and again, I'm not going to read you because it's like half the chapter. But it's a really cool vision that he has. He's in a temple being led by a man, okay? And he's led up to the temple steps. And what happens there? He sees water coming out from the temple. From the holies of holies, there's water trickling out from there. And it's just a trickle. It's under his feet. And the man leads him down, down the steps, down through town, out the south side of town. And this trickle turns into a little stream. Where now his feet are getting really squishy. And then it turns into knee-height water. Then it turns into waist-height water. And they're walking, and they're walking, and they're walking. They're walking through the desert. And all of a sudden, he's now swimming in the water. It's so deep. And the water ends up dumping into the Dead Sea. And this is all flowing out of the presence of God in the temple. And his water, just massive river by the end, flowing into the Dead Sea. And Isaiah turns around and he looks back. And his water is flowing through the desert. The water is flowing into the Dead Sea. What lives in the Dead Sea? Nothing. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. It's too salty for anything to live there. And the holiness, the beauty of God is flowing out of the temple, flowing down through the dead desert, flowing down into the dead sea. And when he looks back, there is life, vegetation growing up everywhere. Isaiah 47 and verse 12. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will the fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Out of a dead desert comes life. Out of the dead sea comes life. It's a complete reverse. If you took clean water and dump it into the dead sea, what happens to that water? It's no longer capable of producing life. It's no longer good for drinking. But the goodness from God coming out of the temple brings life and goodness. Now, in Scripture, when we talk about trees, what are trees typically a picture of? People. People. A man is like a tree planted by streams of water, right? Psalm chapter 1. Isaiah sees in the future... Deadness. Dead people. Unliving things. And the holiness of God, the greatness of God, flowing out from the temple, turns around. People are now living. And they're producing what? Fruit. Good fruit. Pleasing to God. And that fruit brings healing and life to the nations. Interesting. Interesting. And all of this becomes really crystal clear to us in hindsight because what's the next big thing that steps up on the scene? you got Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus Christ claim to be? He claims to be the Son of God. I am the living water. I am the Holy One who was promised. We read it, uh, you read from Paul. Paul quotes this after they killed Jesus, right? He says, you killed the Holy One of God. 
And Jesus, again, probably one of the bravest people in the world, okay, walks up to dead people, impure people, and what does he do? He touches them. People with the most deadly diseases, what does he do? Hugs them. Has compassion on them. When I see sick people just like you guys do, like really sick people, I don't know. Jared's weird because he likes to hang out with them all right, as a nurse. But for most of us, when I see really sick people, I tend to walk away because I don't want that. Jesus did the opposite. He went to those sick people. And did those sick people ever make Jesus sick? No! Like the coal that made Isaiah pure. And the transfer going the other way, instead of the dirty Isaiah making that coal dirty, Jesus, when He touches something, His perfection, His purity, when He touches unclean things, those unclean things don't make Jesus dirty. They make Jesus makes them pure. Make sure I can say it right. Jesus makes them pure. Jesus has not become defiled and impure and unclean when He touches dirty things. When Jesus chooses to touch something dirty, that dirty thing becomes clean. The implications to us today is this. We are a dirty people. We can't come into the presence of God. But if Jesus touches you, if Jesus embraces you, His goodness, His perfection, His purity is not transferred from you to Him to make Him dirty. It goes reverse. He makes you clean. He makes you perfect. And guess what? Perfect things can come into the presence of God. One of the last places we see the picture of God's holiness in the universe flowing out. Last page of the Bible. Revelation 22. In Revelation 22, God kind of wraps up this, this, this revelation of His holiness in a pictorial sense of how it flows out through the world. And again, we see a temple. We see a temple in heaven in, in Revelation 22. And this temple is like the temple here on earth, except for this is the real temple. It's God's real presence. It's where the Father sits on the throne. The real presence of God. And what do we see in Revelation 22? All right, Again, go read this at home because we don't have time. But what do we see about Revelation 22? Verses 1 through 6. Again, there is water flowing out of the temple. There's water flowing out of the temple, and it's called the river of life. And Jesus gives one last invitation. And he says this, Come to me and drink. Anybody who hears this call, come. Anybody who is thirsty, come and drink from the living water. God desires to share His beauty. Desires to share His purity. Desires to share His uniqueness with anybody who wants to come. Anybody who wants to get clean and have a relationship with God, all they have to do is come. And Jesus will touch them. And He will clean you. And make you right before God. 
No more do the sacrificial ways of Leviticus matter. They all pointed to and identified with us as humans that there's a real problem we have. Human beings have a real problem. We cannot come into the presence of God. And guess what? Where does God live? Heaven. Perfection. Where we all want to go. But you can't. Why? Because we're defiled people. God cannot be in the presence of undefiled people. With defiled, sorry, with defiled people. He can't do it. It's not because he doesn't want to. He just can't. He cannot do it. So he has to fix us. And Leviticus shows us, all right, not how to permanently fix us, but it shows us how bad we really are. And it really shows us that we can't fix it ourselves. There's no way to permanently fix our problem. It's that we need someone like the coal to come and touch us and make us right. We need Jesus, who represents the coal, to come and touch us and make us right before God. And then we, who drank from Jesus, who have that spiritual water flowing inside of us, are made right. His perfection is translated onto us. Imputed righteousness is poured on us. And in God's sight, we are declared right. We are now holy before Him. You are a holy people. Chosen. I'm getting ahead of myself now. <laughs> you are a holy people chosen. All right, Ephesians 4.1. If you don't have this one underlined, sorry, 1.4. All right, go to Ephesians. We'll, we'll do some reading here. All right, let's get into some scripture. Fine. Galatians, Ephesians. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. If you don't have these underlined in your Bible or highlighted, these are some good ones, okay? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You ready for this one, guys? For He chose us. Take that out. He chose me. For He chose me in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Isn't that awesome? God has chosen me. He has chosen you. Defiled, dirty, nasty people. Inappropriate, unable to come into His presence to clean us up and declare us to be holy, to be blameless, to be perfect in His sight. And how did He do that? All by the blood of His Son. All by the blood of His Son. Colossians 1.22 Yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless beyond reproach. Jesus Christ has taken His death on the cross and made a way for you to be made clean before God. Blameless, reconciled, fixed relationship with God. Alright, turn to me to First Peter. Alright, so what, Brian? So what? Does God have any expectations in return? What do I have to do? Nothing. Just believe that Jesus touched you and healed you. 
And First Peter, all right, we're going to read a little bit through here. Uh, verse 13. First Peter 1, 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Say your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. They're quoting the Old Testament here. Multiple times in the Old Testament, God says to his people, to the Israelites, Listen, I'm a holy God. You're my chosen people. You represent me. Guess what? Be holy. But now in the New Testament, because Leviticus was written for the Israelites primarily, right? Written for the Jews. They take it and now apply it to us, to Gentiles. Hey, Gentiles, guess what? You were chosen by a holy God. You were adopted into the family of God by a holy God. Guess what? You represent Him now. Be holy now. In a sense that, yes, you are declared right. You are declared blameless in God's sight. But He's also saying, guess what? There's a part that you have to play. Not that you can earn your way to heaven. But here on earth, guess what? You're His ambassador. We represent the most holy, perfect being in the universe to the world. You represent Him. When people want to know what God is like, guess what? They're looking at you. Hey, Christian, follower of Jesus Christ, that's what you claim to be. Be holy. Be set apart. Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Have some respected fear of the God who saved you and represent Him well here on earth. Not fear where you're you know, hiding under your bed, but reverential fear and understanding you know who God really is, you know what He's really like, and you understand how much He loves you. For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from this empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, excuse me, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Guys, do you understand how much it costs to earn your perfection? Do you understand how much it costs for you to be made right with God? We're here every Sunday to worship it. Let it sink in. It, it was his son. He had to die for you. That's what it cost to make this all happen for us. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in his last times for your sake. I, I love that part. Before God made me, he knew I was going to screw up. He knew I was going to ruin my relationship with him. He knew I was going to sin, and purposely go against His will. And before He made me, He chose to put a plan into action. He chose to crucify His Son. To crush His Son. I, I, I don't know about you. If I were God, I wouldn't have done it. Say, so, you know what? Forget that plan. Plan B, let's start over again. You know, I, I would have never even started the process. 
If I knew that what I was going to make was going to break and fail, and that it was going to cost me everything to fix it, forget about it. If I knew that I was going to build a house, invest all that time and energy into this house, just for a month later for that house to fall apart and break, and then cost me everything to fix it again, forget about it. I would never do that. That's, that's foolishness. I'm not calling God a fool. But His infinite wisdom and His infinite love decided to follow the course. It blows my mind. He loves us, guys. He truly loves us. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in His last times for your sake. Though you believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him, and so your faith and hope are now in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for the brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. And now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Guys, God has invested so much in you. There are some expectations in return. And rightfully so. And rightfully so from our behalf, that if you truly understand what the holiness of God has done for you to make you become appropriate in His sight and to fix your messed up, uh, your messed up condition, this should be a no-brainer for you. Yeah, God, what do you want in return? I want you to be ridding yourself of all malice, all deceit. To get rid of hypocrisy in your life. To get rid of envy and slander. And crave my pure spiritual milk. Crave this. You know what? And also, love everybody else in the room. Love each other. That's what the Holy God is asking us. To love each other. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of, or reasonable act of, worship. God is calling us to represent Him here on earth. To be holy because He is holy. Be holy this coming year because God is holy. He has made you spiritually holy. He has made you spiritually perfect. Act like it on the outside now. Let's pray. Lord our God, I want to give you thanks that before the creation of the world you chose to send your son to die for me. To die for all of us. Because you are a holy God and there's nothing wrong with you and there's everything wrong with us. And you want us to be a part of your family. You want us to be 
having a relationship with you, and we cannot. We cannot come into your presence. We cannot live in heaven with you because of our defiled state. Lord, we thank you that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, offered himself on our behalf. And that when he came down here, our dirtiness, our filth, did not make him dirty. But he remained pure all the time. Even though he came in contact with us all the time, he never once became impure. But his purity transferred to everybody who came in contact with him. And Lord, we thank you that we have come into contact with your son. And he has made us perfect too. Help us to appreciate that. Help us to live a life that is holy and perfect. Live a life worthy of all that you have done for us. Help us to be good ambassadors for you this coming year. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In your son's name. Amen.